You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. The energy industry is not necessarily the most obvious place from which this transition develops. When we think about the energy transition and the impacts it would have on fossil fuel markets, there could be big disruptions. There could be a very, very different future from what we've grown used to. For August 3rd, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Over the two decades in which I have been a student, pundit, analyst, and now podcaster on energy, I've seen people struggle to imagine how the energy transition will unfold. I suppose one can be forgiven for expecting the future to look much like the past, because it usually does. That's why, for example, so few people saw the global financial crash of 2008 coming, and why Nassim Nicholas Taleb's 2007 book, The Black Swan, The Impact of the Highly Improbable, quickly put the concept of black swans, rare and unpredictable events, into the public vernacular. It's also why we tend to look for simplistic explanations for these events retrospectively. As we discussed in episode 177, our models of the world, be they formal models of things like climate policy or just our mental models of people and events, have a hard time predicting outlier events or understanding how and why they happened after the fact. We are deeply attached to the concept of normal, so much so that some people react with hostility toward any suggestion that reality might break with it. But there's no precedent or useful analog for the existential crisis of global warming in which we now find ourselves, and the past isn't proving very useful in helping us understand what lies ahead. We've never had to completely replace almost all of the energy sources we use to power our civilization before, let alone in just a few decades. And we've never had to displace so much power and wealth either. After all, the fossil fuel industry and the infrastructure that it runs on represent, by far, the largest and wealthiest sector of the global economy. Never before have governments attempted a global transformation at this scale or speed. The energy transition is many things, but one thing it is not is normal. It's easy to understand, then, why the energy transition makes some people, well, let's say a lot of people, nervous. They would much prefer that we plot a path through it with all the usual elements, like schedules and cost-benefit analyses and priorities and clear metrics and objectives of a well-considered plan in place before we embark on the journey. But that's just not possible. So what are we to do? Plunge blindly into the darkness and just hope that it all works out? Or refuse to take a single step until we are confident that we have a workable plan? In today's conversation, we offer a middle path between those extremes and show why we can actually have quite a lot of confidence about how to proceed without knowing exactly what all the steps are and without knowing exactly where we'll end up some decades from now. We'll also show why staying our current course is not an option. We must move now, and we can be fairly confident that things really are going to turn out all right. Our guest today is well-equipped to discuss this topic because he studied the history of technological innovations and especially the evolution of modern solar power extensively. Dr. Gregory Nemet is a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the La Follette School of Public Affairs, where he teaches energy systems analysis, policy analysis, and international environmental policy. His research focuses on understanding the process of technological change and the ways in which public policy can affect it. I'm very pleased that he was willing to have this conversation with me because this one is a little bit out of the ordinary for our show. 
Usually, I rely heavily on our guests' published research for source material we can discuss, but this conversation is based primarily on my perceptions of the general discourse about the energy transition, where I think it is confused about the fundamental nature of the transition and how I think it will unfold. Greg was a good sport and offered some very pertinent observations, and I think you'll find this conversation thought-provoking. Then in the news segment, we'll update Europe's latest efforts to do without Russian gas supplies. We'll mark the new expiration date for oil-burning cars in Europe. We'll see how Australia's power grid is faring. And we'll check out a couple of V2G advances in the United States. And now our conversation with Greg Nemet, recorded June 6, 2022. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Greg, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. You're a scholar of the energy transition and particularly of the advances of solar over the past several decades, which you chronicled in your 2019 book, How Solar Energy Became Cheap, a Model for Low-Carbon Innovation. You've also researched how to design credible climate policies, the costs, removal potential, and pathways to scale up negative emissions technologies, and you've done several studies on technology learning curves and the ways that knowledge gained from advances in one technology can actually spill over and inform other technologies. So I wanted to invite you on the show to talk about an idea that I've been kicking around for a while, just kind of in my head, which is to try to imagine how the energy transition will evolve. Because I think there are a lot of myths and mistaken ideas out there about how that's going to happen. So how about it? You ready to peer into the dimly lit future with me? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. So let's start with a big idea. In various ways, many people insist that we must have an orderly energy transition, that we should be making concrete plans today for the sorts of energy systems we think we'll need decades from now, or that we should not risk shutting down major sources of carbon emissions until we have replacements ready to take their place, or that we shouldn't invest in anything new until we have a cost-benefit analysis proving that it's economically sensible. And, you know, those all sound like perfectly reasonable demands in a normal course of things, I guess, until you actually think through what it would take to achieve them, at which point you realize that they can't actually be fulfilled. And I thought Alex Steffen had an elegant formulation of this problem in a recent post that I've linked to in the show notes, and I'm just going to quote a bit of it here. It's the very speed of change and erosion of predictability that makes eyes-open engagement with our new realities so important. Events being unprecedented does not make them beyond comprehension. The loss of continuity does not mean a descent into blind chaos. We can learn to thrive amidst discontinuity, disruption, upheaval. There are thousands of people teaching themselves how right now. Their success or failure may be the most important challenge facing humanity. How quickly we act is the future we get. Speed is everything. In a better past, we would have been both limiting the extent of the destruction we now face and increasing the rate at which we deployed solutions. This might have won us the opportunity to head off disaster with much disruption. But there's no point in hoping for a better past. Grand collective actions can no longer produce an orderly transition. Your thoughts? There's no point hoping for a better past. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah, I completely agree on speed and that acceleration is such a crucial part of what we need to do. And that may be the part that a lot of people may not fully understand about how how quickly we need to go. And I think the three things that I think are kind of core to this speeding up challenge are one is the scale of the transition, the scale of the energy system, the scale of the climate system. 
doing things in a small marginal way doesn't get us where we need to go. Two, uncertainty is such a crucial part of this. We don't know how bad the climate problem is going to get. We also don't know how well or difficulties that might emerge from the solutions that we deploy. So there's some humility we need from that. And then also we have to acknowledge the third part to me is heterogeneity. People want different things. They have different preferences on what they think of as acceptable risks and unacceptable risks of time preferences between the future costs and near-term costs, all in different contexts. So I think speed is really at the center here, but we have to do that in the context of making a transition at massive scale with deep uncertainty and with really different preferences on what exactly people want from the energy transition. You have to have some sympathy, of course, for people that are nervous about plunging our entire society into this transition without knowing how it's going to turn out, without having a clear plan of execution for how we get from point A to point B. In some cases, we may even be relying on technologies that aren't really commercial yet. And in particular, I think about things like carbon capture and sequestration. So what's the right way to think about that, about the discomfort, <laughs> the uncertainty that we're facing? How much of a risk are we really taking? Yeah. I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say is we're taking a lot of risk by continuing to put greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That comes with tremendous uncertainty and potential for thresholds and rapid change and hard to know exactly where, when, and how bad those impacts will be. So we, our actions over the last 200 years, but especially the lack of action over the last 30 years has brought us face-to-face -face with those risks and will likely continue to increase. So that's kind of the context we start with. And then on the other side of it, on the solutions, what do we do about it? How do we transition into a situation that will remedy those impacts and make them not as bad, those have risks as well. And I think the way to think about it is this concept of robustness. Are there things that we would do that are good ideas to do regardless of how the technology works out, regardless of how public acceptance works out, regardless of what other countries do, regardless of what climate sensitivity does. And it's hard to find individual solutions that are robust to all of the different possible outcomes. But if you start to put portfolios of different solutions together and you think about this whole effort as going to work pretty well across a bunch of different scenarios, that's robustness and that's what we need to go for. So then when we think about things like you mentioned with carbon removal, with these unproven technologies that are just getting started at tens of thousands of tons of CO2 being removed when we need to get to billions of tons to actually make a dent in the climate problem, those are options that we need to develop. And we need to be clear that we don't have the option to say, well, we might need carbon removal in 2040, so let's wait till then. If we want to have it available in 2040, we need to be growing it, making the industry mature, getting the cost down, making the efficiency better, dealing with public acceptance issues, getting policies that work, all the things that we've done for other technologies. And so, yeah, part of the challenge now is developing options that we might need later because I think the context, the way you put it, is right. We don't know exactly what all the solutions will be. So we want to have many bets and hedge those bets and have robust solutions. You know, I think you've made two really important points there, and I'm just going to repeat them. The first is that we're, we're not exchanging a stable, certain future for an uncertain, disorderly future. The future that we are on course to today by default, is not stable. It might be familiar, 
<laughs> but it's not stable. And there's a lot of uncertainty about where this path will take us. And what we know so far is that it's taking us to a place that nobody wants to go. So it's not like we're exchanging a stable or secure future for one that's uncertain and disorderly. All of our choices are uncertain and disorderly. And the second point that you made there is that we do have experience in creating public policy and various kinds of incentives to encourage technologies to become commercial, to help them get over the legendary valley of death, you know, for, between the laboratory bench and the retail shelf. And we have experience with all sorts of technology learning curves that should give us confidence that these are challenges we can win. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And we should use our experience of what, what has worked in the past and apply them to some of the technologies we might need in the future. Yeah. Okay. So Stefan in the aforementioned blog, he goes on to say, one of the clearest implications of our not being able to secure an orderly transition is that the tempo of progress will not be set by what we all agree to do together, but by what those pushing for faster change can succeed in doing themselves, despite barriers and opposition. I'm very much in agreement with Alex on that, and I think much of the progress of the energy transition, especially over the past several years, really bears that out. I mean, the capitalistic motivations of EV manufacturers, especially Tesla, of Chinese solar manufacturers, of EV public charging network operators, and of countless providers of distributed energy resources, and for the millionth time, I wish we had a better term for that than, oh, DERs, <laughs> they've arguably allowed them to achieve far more than any policies specifically aimed for them to achieve. They just saw an opportunity to make a buck and they went for it. And that's just on the supply side. I mean, consumers are also buying EVs and solar systems and distributed storage systems all over the world for their own reasons, and not just where there are subsidies or incentives on offer to stimulate those purchases. Sometimes it's just what makes economic sense. And that's been happening for a long time now. I mean, you remember the utility death spiral we were all talking about like six, seven years ago? There are millions of individuals making their own decisions that are providing much of the momentum of the energy transition. And they're not only doing it despite barriers and opposition, they're doing it in a decidedly unorderly way. No one's directing them to do it. I think that will only become more so as the transition progresses. This transition is not being directed by any sort of a top-down plan. It's bottom-up, it's chaotic, it's decentralized, and it's voluntary. I agree. And, you know, I think part of what fits with what Alex Steffen mentioned and in your interpretation too, is it's a different role for leadership. So you might think of leadership as providing the order or the direction or the allocation of resources. But I think leadership plays a different role here. It's about creating a model and getting out ahead and showing how things can be done and not necessarily only doing that if the rest of the world follows or if the rest of the industry follows. And we've seen that with entrepreneurs and firms and some of the examples that you just gave. We've seen it with different countries that have gotten way ahead on things. And Denmark did it with wind turbines. Germany did it with markets for solar. China has done it with a lot of manufacturing efforts, especially on batteries now. And what's exciting about seeing those types of efforts is they can generate these catalytic processes where a little bit of change 
catalyzes much more change behind it. And it could be something like creating an initial market that leads to firms maturing the technology that leads to costs coming down, which expands the market. And you get this positive feedback mechanism that ultimately you might capture in something called a learning curve. But that's kind of the idea here is that you don't subsidize technologies so that we can get 50 billion tons of CO2 out of the energy system every year, you catalyze some of that and you subsidize some of that so that these, like you said, these industrial decisions and behavioral decisions and individual decisions start to follow and then you get a momentum of its own. And we've seen models of that in multiple ways now. We've seen it with solar, with wind, with batteries for electric vehicles, with demand side innovations, like heat pumps are starting to happen and with lighting LEDs, especially. And so, you know, we've got a playbook now for how some of these efforts can happen. But as you say, it's not a top-down imposition of now we will all use solar in every house. It's this bottom-up part that has its own its own way of moving because it's based on individual choices and things like pure effects and communities and efforts by, by companies and small groups of people as well. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of power in the bottom up. You do need some top down too. You need some guidance, some frameworks to make things go fast. Cause again, that's something we really need to happen too. So there's the top down part that's crucial, but the bottom up part is really what's driving a lot of things now. You know, I don't want to seem unsympathetic to those who would like the energy transition to be orderly, to have some well-considered roadmap developed by technocrats laying out how we'll get from here to there. But that's a feature of what Daniel Sneum called socialist energy policy in episode 170, because grand infrastructure projects like district heating systems tend to be features of countries that aren't afraid to plan and execute projects from the top down. But that is most emphatically not how we do energy projects in the U.S. I mean, here we are utterly committed to the free market, except, of course, where it disadvantages the owners of economically failing nuclear and coal plants. Then we expect the public to bail them out instead of letting them (laughs) fail. We've devolved nearly all energy infrastructure planning to the states. And even then, the actual decisions about what gets built are not made by some state regulator, but they're actually made more often at the utility level maybe with some oversight by a state regulator, maybe sometimes very minimal oversight. So anyone expecting an orderly transition in the U.S. or expecting that someone will figure out the optimal mix of resources some decades from now and actually form policy around that simply doesn't understand how we do stuff here. Yeah, that's right. And one idea from some of the innovation literature that I spent a lot of time working in is this concept of national innovation systems. And that's a concept from the early 1990s. But the idea there is that you should expect different types of innovation to emerge from different places because they each have a different set of conditions, like an education system, culture, financial resources, capabilities of the state, type of markets, what people think of in terms of new technology. And they all are very different and they shape technology. And so in the case of the US, because of this decentralized decision-making system and federalism and and a lot of decision-making put at the state level, we should expect bottom-up policies, but even bottom-up types of technologies as well. Whereas in other areas, other parts of the world where a lot of the technical capabilities of the country are in the state, then you can expect larger projects and you can expect larger projects to be maybe more successful than they would be in a more decentralized type of system. So you might expect a district heating system to work well in a social democracy like Europe 
or a large-scale nuclear power plant to be most effective in a place like South Korea or in China. And in the U.S., we do things differently. And it's much more about federalism, about states, and about bottom-up. So that also aligns. So that's kind of on national innovation systems and cultural differences and others. But there's also this technological paradigm that's emerging that aligns with the U.S. view. And that's this idea of small-scale, granular, modular technologies being much more successful if you look at the last 20 or 30 years than large-scale technologies. Small-scale technologies tend to be adopted more quickly, so in terms of the growth rate from a small market share to a large one, and they also have higher learning rates. So if you think of how costs fall over time, small-scale technologies go faster. And so that's really started to raise questions about the role of small versus large-scale technologies. And one thing that's really changed my own thinking, when I was in grad school 20 years ago, the thinking was that, well, the energy system's big, the climate system's really big, so we shouldn't mess around with little technologies like LED lights or solar panels. We need big solutions. And I think that thinking has really been reversed by some of the evidence that comes out about how small-scale technologies grow faster and learn faster. And I think it's really likely to turn out that small scale technologies will turn out to be able to scale, to have a bigger impact than large scale technologies. And so I think that also fits into the planning and decision-making context of the U.S. is that the technological systems we're thinking about now are much more granular and modular. And that seems to be where all the action is. And so that's, that's where I would place my bets if I was thinking about where you wanted to make things go quickly. And once again, it occurs to me how ironic it is that Bill Gates, <laughs> champion of the personal computer, this was a, a small version of what had been the dominant mainframe paradigm to take over the world, which it did, can't seem to get his head around that same thing happening in the energy space. He has been extremely public and repeatedly said that only big like nuclear plants or big stuff can solve these problems. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you just have to be open to the evidence. And I mean, I was skeptical as well, but I remember talking to my dad about this like 20 years ago and thinking, and he was just like, well, solar is like so tiny. And even if it keeps growing, I was like, yeah, but if it grows 30% a year, which it's been doing, mm -hmm. it eventually gets big and it would have to grow for like 30% a year for 30 years to really get big. That's exactly what's happened. Yeah. And it continues to grow at that rate. And so, yeah, this power of kind of exponential growth of these small scale technologies is, is pretty amazing when you look at it in the big picture. And that's really what's driving things now. You know, I sometimes think how much easier it would be if our society was, in fact, a little more friendly toward top-down execution. You know, if we actually did go about the energy transition in a deliberate way, instead of trying to just sort of design markets that will hopefully take us where we want to go, <laughs> the horns of the dilemmas that we're on now would be so much easier. I mean, look at the Russia situation as an example. Like, here's the Biden administration. On the one hand, they want to champion the energy transition. On the other hand, we can't keep buying Russian oil and neither can anyone else in the West. And so the only way to actually make that possible is to produce more <laughs> oil and gas domestically and ship it to Europe or whatever we got to do. That is intellectually, morally, politically a very difficult place to be in. I mean, you have to kind of be of two minds. 
Whereas if we had for the past 30 years, as you say, made a deliberate commitment, an unwavering commitment to the energy transition, I don't think it would be such a divided path for us. We would have been much farther along in building the solutions of the energy transition, and we would be able to just simply accelerate that path. Or if you look at another example, the solar trade tariff issue that we have going on today. I mean, as as we speak today on June 6th, the Biden administration has announced that it's essentially intervening and saying, all right, look, we're not going to keep prosecuting this solar tariff issue right now. It's just causing too much havoc in the industry. It's slowing down the deployment of solar, which is counterproductive. So we're just not going to prosecute that. And hopefully we'll just get the whole pipeline of projects unblocked, get that moving again. And of course, immediately we have the domestic solar manufacturers crying foul and screaming and saying, well, you're just allowing the Chinese to dump state subsidized solar all over our markets, which is putting us out of business. Again, if we had been prosecuting this energy transition in a deliberate way, we would not be in such a difficult spot. We would have maybe done something similar to what China did. We would be providing all sorts of federal support or subsidies or whatever to the solar industry so that we could become a globally competitive provider of solar product to the world as China has done. Instead, we're way on the back heel and having to be, again, of two minds. Yeah. I mean, one of the challenges with energy is because of the long time horizons that are involved, mainly because equipment lasts so long. So it's not like phones where if you come up with a holographic smartphone next year, you could get 50% of people to start using it because cars last so long, power plants last a really long time, buildings last a really long time. There's this inertia in the system. And so what you need to have is a sustained social prioritization of energy is something we need to work on not just when there's russia invading ukraine not just when gasoline is six dollars a gallon not just when natural gas prices are high but all the time because that's what we want to do for our transition and that's been really hard for any country but specifically in the u.s context i mean there's one thing that i I've been doing is just for the last 40 years tracking counts of the word energy in articles in the new york times and you see this ebb and flow of interest in energy that maps somewhat to oil prices, but also has its kind of own momentum, but it doesn't look stable at all. It's very much booms and busts. And now we're in a time when there is a lot of attention on energy because of the geopolitical issues, because climate change seems to also be in one of its high watermarks that happens from time to time and because prices are high as well. And so I think it's really what happens now? And, you know, I think one of the most impactful times for energy was the 1970s in response to the 1973 and 79 oil crises. And what made that time impactful is that there was strong social consensus in the US and is also in other countries that we needed to really change our energy system, that we needed to invest in conservation, invest in new technologies, have a broad set of bets, put more resources to the problem. And that created a lot of the outcomes that we're benefiting now, but we also kind of gave up on that vision in the 1980s once oil prices crashed. So I think now it was the time to have this kind of comprehensive vision that we sustain for the next 30 years, because 
I think it's obvious to everyone that this climate problem is not going to go away. Fossil fuel price volatility is not going to go away. And countries that take advantage of that price volatility and use it to geopolitical ends like we're seeing now is also not going to go away. And so there are things we can do to mediate those risks. And that's kind of my kind of optimistic outcome of this really difficult kind of set of conditions that are happening right now as we develop that kind of consensus and move in that direction consistently. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Europe continues to muddle through its ongoing efforts to reduce its dependency on Russian supplies of natural gas, as we detailed in episode 171. On June 19th, Germany said it would restart some of its coal-fired power plants in order to conserve natural gas after Russia reduced its gas deliveries to Europe. Russian gas flows to Germany through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, its largest gas route, were running at about 40% of capacity. Gazprom, the Russian gas company, has suspended gas deliveries to Poland, Bulgaria, Finland, Netherlands, Denmark, and Germany after they refused to meet Putin's demands in March that they pay for it in rubles. Italy, Austria, and the Netherlands have also signaled their intent to keep running their coal-fired power plants for the time being. Italian utility Eni and German utility Uniper said they were receiving less than contracted Russian gas volumes. The Austrian government voted to move up a ban on new gas boilers to take effect in 2023 instead of 2025. The government will also provide 7,500 euros for customers to switch to pellet stoves or heat pumps and cover 100% of the cost of switching for low-income households. The Dutch government proceeded to activate the first phase of a crisis energy plan, allowing it to produce 2.8 billion cubic meters of gas from the Groningen gas field in the production year ending October 2023, down from 4.5 billion cubic meters in the current year. As recently as April, the Dutch government had maintained that it would proceed with its plan to shut down the Groningen field by 2023. Production from the field has been blamed for damaging earthquakes in that region. Netherlands also said it would remove a cap on production at Dutch coal plants in order to preserve gas. 
The European benchmark gas contract stood at around 124 euros, or $130 US per megawatt hour, on June 20th, 300% higher than it was a year ago. EU countries are worried about refilling their gas storage before winter sets in, and Germany has passed a law requiring that storage is at least 90% full by November. Europe's gas inventories were only about 54% full on June 19th. Refilling was further slowed after a June 8th fire shut down the Freeport LNG export terminal in Texas, removing about 2 billion cubic feet per day of LNG export capacity from the U.S. Europe's gas storage was already depleted at the start of the year. In January, IEA chief Fatih Birol accused Russia of holding back at least one-third of the gas it could send to Europe while drawing down Russian-controlled storage facilities on the continent to intensify a supply crunch. That helped President Putin set the stage to ensure maximum pain for Europe when he launched his invasion of Ukraine the following month. Item 2. On June 8th, the European Parliament voted to support a proposal requiring a 100% reduction in CO2 emissions from new cars by 2035, which would effectively ban the sale of new gasoline and diesel cars by that date. The move is part of the EU's plans to cut greenhouse gas emissions 55% by... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. XE Network.